Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. For Airbnb and its co-founder and CEO, Brian Chesky, the pandemic crisis was a crazier roller coaster ride than almost any other organization experienced. The online lodging marketplace went from predictions that it might not survive the COVID-19 crisis to staging a successful IPO less than nine months later. In this special guest episode of McKinsey's Inside the Strategy Room podcast, senior partner James Manika, who chairs the McKinsey Global Institute, learns from the Airbnb leader what that ride was really like. We hope you enjoy their conversation and that you'll return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. I think that the way a company handles a crisis is often the way the leader handles the crisis. And what it often comes down to is the psychology of the leader. The hardest thing to manage in a crisis isn't your company, it's your own psychology, it's your own thoughts. As a leader, your thoughts can get away from you and you can think all is doomed, you can ask why me, you can get paralyzed, or you can tell yourself, this is my defining moment and this is going to be remembered. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, share his perspective on how organizations address crises. His company faced a major crisis in 2020, going from having its long-term survival questioned to staging a successful IPO several months later. This podcast was recorded during a recent global CEO event we held online that was focused on growing out of the crisis. During the podcast, Brian talks with James Manika, a senior partner based in San Francisco who co-chairs the McKinsey Global Institute, about his experience leading Airbnb through the crisis. Their discussion is also based in part upon a paper James recently co-authored titled, It's Time to Build the 21st Century Company inspired by his conversations and work with CEOs like Brian. First, James will share some of the core insights from the article, and then Brian will walk through how Airbnb addressed the sudden and dramatic plunge in its business, how they adapted their business model to those new realities, and how they led to a reimagination of how Airbnb defines its role in society and the broader economy. Now, over to James. Welcome to this discussion on the 21st century corporation. It has been said that eras never quite align neatly with the calendar. Uh, The forces behind the first industrial revolution started well before 1800, but didn't really get going until Victoria became queen in 1837. And it so it may be with us that the new era for the 21st century company has only just recently arrived and covid may have provided stark evidence of that. Now, to be clear, uh, it is exciting uh, in that in this 21st century era, companies will operate in in a world where by whatever measure you choose, whether it's the size of economies, income per capita, longevity, innovation, and discovery, humanity as a whole will continue to be better off and opportunities will abound. Now, in the last few decades, uh, as we know, a billion people have risen out of poverty 
By 2030, places once called developing markets will account for half of global consumption. AI, the biological revolution, and other opportunity-creating innovations are only just getting started, and we saw some of that during this uh, COVID uh, year. But at the same time, and this is the point, the same forces that are generating opportunities are creating challenges that were far less in focus at the start of the century, but now are and will shape the environment for companies in the 21st century. Let me give some examples. Start with inequality. While global prosperity has grown, inequality has risen within countries. So too has anti-globalization populism. Among nations, the rise of new economic powers now feeds a cascade of geopolitical, geoeconomic, geotechnological rivalries that could disrupt trade and supply chains and access to opportunities. Technology spread is increasingly driving scale and network effects that enable the best positioned companies, again, we saw that during COVID, regardless of sector, to claim an outsized share of value. Today, the top 10% of all firms, and these are not just tech companies, account for 80% of economic profits. And with technology no longer just a sector, but foundational to the performance of every company, Concerns have escalated with respect to data privacy, cybersecurity, the role of platforms, not to mention the impact of technology on jobs and wages. Furthermore, societal attitudes have progressed. An increasingly influential and vocal younger generation demands that companies walk their talk on diversity and inclusion, and events of the last year brought that into sharp relief in the U.S. and in other countries. And looming over everything is the escalating concern about sustainability and the threat of accelerating climate change, as we just heard. Society expects action, and many say that they look to companies to get their act together and lead change rather than wait for governments to act. Another way to look at all of this is to consider some of the choices CEOs, you, are now having to make. How far do you go beyond shareholder capitalism, and how do you balance the interests of diverse stakeholders? As you digitize and deploy AI, what responsibility do you have to retrain and redeploy workers displaced by technology? What do you tell investors who continue to hassle you about your stock performance and short-term results, but now also demand details of your ESG performance? How do you navigate the geopolitical, geoeconomic challenges if you have value chains and platforms that span the globe? How do you attract and retain diverse workforce you need? How do you speak out or when do you speak out or should you speak out on social issues? How do you earn the social license to operate? I could go on. The point is that in order to pursue and capture the 21st century's unprecedented opportunities while addressing its challenges, companies may need to chart a course different from the past. But what does that look like? Well, rather than tell you, uh, we thought it'd be more interesting to hear from the founder and CEO of a company that's been trying to be a different kind of company fit for the 21st century. That CEO is Brian Chesky. Hey, James, thank you for having me today. No, it's terrific to have you. I mean, Brian, you've had quite the remarkable year over the last 12 or so months. And there's, a, there's kind of two uh, remarkable bookends. Uh, and it's bookended by kind of two events that could not have been more different but before we get into your May 5th, 2020 letter that you published, take us back to this time a year ago. What was happening in the world and what was happening at Airbnb? Well, um, you know, like 
like many people, I came back from the holidays in 2019, thinking 2020 was going to be a certain way. And I thought my life was going to go a certain direction. And we had a plan. I'm sure you all had a plan. And then all of a sudden, um, I felt like a captain of a ship and the torpedo hit the side of the ship. And it happened so suddenly. Within eight weeks, our business drops 80%. And business dropping 80% in eight weeks is like a car going 80 miles an hour and slamming on the brakes. Of course, it, a lot of bad things start to happen. And that, that was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was, what are we going to do about it? We were now in a full-blown crisis. I've been in crisis before. I mean, Airbnb, in a sense, was started during my own personal crisis. I couldn't afford to pay rent. <laughs> and we had been through uh, challenging times before. And I learned some lessons from crisis. One of the first lessons I learned is that you have to move much more quickly in a crisis. You have to move much more quickly. I think that people find that crises are defining moments. They try to slow down their decision-making. And that doesn't work in a crisis. You have to actually speed up your decision-making. The second thing I learned is you have to increase the amount of communication you do. The faster things change, the more you need to communicate the change. The next thing I learned, and I learned this from prior crisis, is in good times, you can make what I like to call business decisions. A business decision is like, you know, you try to game theory out what will happen, and then you make a decision hoping that you get the best possible outcome for the company. In a fog of war, of a crisis, you often have no idea what's going to happen next. And so at that moment, you have to make what I would describe as a principal decision, which is, I don't know how it's going to play out. How do I want to be remembered? And that comes to, I think, the most important point. I always thought of a crisis as an opportunity, not to be opportunistic, but I think that the way a company handles a crisis is often the way the leader handles the crisis. And what it often comes down to is the psychology of the leader. The hardest thing to manage in a crisis isn't your company, it's your own psychology, it's your own thoughts. As a leader, your thoughts can get away from you and you can think all is doomed, you can ask why me, you can get paralyzed, or you can tell yourself, this is my defining moment, and this is going to be remembered. This moment is going to leave indelible marks years away. And then you can be optimistic, not blind optimism, but optimism rooted in some facts that give you hope to get out of that situation. And if you can project that optimism, project that confidence, write down your principles and act incredibly quickly then I think you can navigate out of crisis like a captain on a ship that is starting to have a lot of water in the boat. Yeah, and I, and I remember that time, Brian, and I know that it took a lot as you worked your way towards writing the letter that you did. But um, uh, tell us how you build up to writing that letter. Yeah, so travel stops. Our business goes down 80%. And we had no idea when it was going to come back. We said we know our business is going to recover, but we don't know how long it will take. And we also know that when travel does come back, it's going to look different. And so Airbnb needs to look different. And Airbnb is going to need to be smaller for the time being and a more focused company. And so one of the things I did is I wrote down a series of principles. Some examples of the principles were we realized we had to map all reductions to the shape of our future business. So we realized in a crisis, you often have clarity. It's almost like the old story if somebody has a near-death experience and they, suddenly they have clarity. Well, that was kind of what it felt like at Airbnb. We stared into the abyss. And that moment we realized 
we have to get back to our roots, back to connection, back to belonging. And we were pursuing a lot of other initiatives, transportation, travel content. We had a hotel's offering, which we had to scale back, a luxury service. We started realizing these are all wonderful things in good times, but we're going to have to scale these back. So we took basically what was equivalent of a 10-division company, and we made it a single division, a functional organization. And then we realized that we had to reduce the size of the company by around 25%. We worked really, really hard. One of the things I did is I didn't. I wanted to be systematic in a fair way, but deeply personal in how I reviewed it. So we laid off 1,900 people. I reviewed every single person. Like we went line by line, every single person. Not to say the people that laid off got singled out, but we had to have a really clear case for why we were making every single decision we were doing. I always wanted to confront the reality. And then I said, okay, we have to do more than is expected of us. That's the other thing I've learned in a crisis is you have three choices. Although most people don't realize these are choices. You can do less than expected of you. You can do what's expected of you, or you can do more than expected of you. Usually a crisis is a spotlight. It's a stage. It's a moment. It, all hands are on deck. It's usually a terrible opportunity to squander the moment, really demonstrate your values and really lead by example. And we thought, how could we do that in a layoff? So the first thing we said is a lot of people do layoffs for cost-cutting reductions. That was why we were doing it as well, in addition to having to focus. But it's a pandemic. It's a recession. We can't be penny-wise pound-foolish and really be not compassionate about our employees. So we came up with a generous severance program. We came up with a healthcare program where we allowed everyone in the United States to have one year of healthcare. We allowed people to keep their laptops. A lot of companies, when they when you get laid off, you lose your job, they ask you for your equipment back. In a pandemic, your computer, your devices are the only thing connecting you to the world. Without your computer, you're in your home, you're disconnected, you're isolated, and you can't get more work. And we did some really creative things. We actually took a portion of a recruiting team and we turned it into an outplacement firm to help the people that got laid off get new jobs. And I think the most creative thing we did, and possibly the most important, is we allowed our employees to publish their information on an alumni directory. So if you got laid off, you could opt into having your, your information published so recruiters could see all the people that got laid off and they could recruit them. And actually more than 1,000 people published their information and more than 500,000 people visited their profiles. And many of them, of course, the majority of them got rehired. So I started by writing out a series of principles. Then I wrote that letter. And I'll just say a couple things about that letter. The first thing is, a lot of times I like to use a letter or a keynote as a forcing function for clarity. I know like Steve did this at Apple with keynotes. I wanted to say, I'm going to work backwards and I have to explain this. If I can't explain it, we can't do it. And if it doesn't sound right, then it's probably not right. So start with the communication and work backwards. A lot of people work like a lot of people treat communications like waiters in a restaurant. People cook the food and then the waiter has to like serve the food regardless. If you start with the waiter, the serving of the food, you're like, well, I don't want to serve that. Let me make something different. The second thing is I didn't want to have a lot of BS in the letter. I included HR, I included legal, but they knew that this was going to be something that came from me and my heart. And I said one basic principle. I'd say I'd rather do the wrong. I'd rather say a couple of the wrong things, screw up and embarrass myself. But at least people know I'm speaking from the heart than execute this perfectly and coldly. 
I think what people are really looking for is compassion and authenticity. So I thought the biggest risk wasn't I misstep and say something that opens liability. It was that people just don't trust me. The next thing is I wanted to write all first principles, almost like a logic train. I wanted to cut out the like marketing speak and say, this is the situation and go step by step by step by step. And so I, I showed them the principles, how we made the decision. I really wanted to like bring people into every decision that we made. The next thing I did is I thought about the customer of this letter. The customers were really two customers, the employees that were keeping job and the employees that were getting laid off. Employees getting laid off, what they really needed at that point was dignity. So I made it really, really clear in the letter more than once that the people in this that were being laid off were some of the important people that helped build this company, help make this company, and the other companies would be lucky to hire them. And we're going to try to help place them. I even started reaching out to CEOs, my peers, saying, hey, we have laid off people. They're really good. You should consider them. And the last thing I did is I used a four-letter word that I don't think you're supposed to use in business. And it's the word love. And I told employees, I love them. And that could sound really cheesy. You know, when I wrote it, I felt it that I I felt this deep sense of care. And I, I, and it's easier to feel that when people depend on you, you feel your responsibility, people are scared, they're looking at you, it hurts a lot. And that's what I did. And I, I wasn't expecting it to be noticed beyond the company. And I don't, it doesn't, didn't make it easier people that got laid off still got laid off. But I do think that the way we did it and the way we communicated helped us really get ready for the next step. That letter is quite remarkable. I want to highlight a couple of things. I mean, because I think several million people read that letter because it got circulated quite a bit. And so here's one snippet, for example. This is the start of a remarkable level of kind of transparency and clarity that you had in that letter. One of my favorite parts, at least, and you alluded to this, which is you said, I have deep feeling of love for all of you. That That's quite remarkable for a CEO to write. And as you said, you did speak to both the employees who were staying as well as the ones who were leaving. And I want to point out the last part there. You said you were sorry. What was going yes. through your head when you wrote that, Brian, when you said you were sorry? Let me, let me kind of put myself in where I was when I was writing it so you know what's going through my head. First of all, when the crisis started, I said, we're going to communicate a lot more. So what I did is I would sit where I'm sitting now and I would do a weekly, like all hands meeting where I'd ask, answer all the questions. And so every week I really stared in the face of fear and concern about people and their jobs. And I committed to them to doing everything we could to protect the most number of people possible and to really try to get us out of this crisis. And by the time we came to the conclusion that we'd have to separate from 1,900 people, it kind of broke my heart. You know, I think it broke a lot of people's hearts. I was very emotional, very upset. I was forewarned by a lot of public company CEOs. The hardest thing I'd ever have to do is a layoff. And it was pretty hard for me. And so when I wrote that, I was just telling them, I was just so incredibly sorry that these were the circumstances because I think people thought they were going to be part of a successful IPO. They were going to be able to have this whole experience. They were going to have long careers at Airbnb. And then suddenly, we had to say goodbye to people so suddenly. And I mean, one of the last things I said, I said, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your talents with us. And again, that last paragraph is really about dignity. Well, and also let me highlight something else too that, that was quite striking. And you said this in your remarks at the beginning. So I remember you actually borrowed money 
to be able to extend some benefits to employees. You changed your uh, the kind of the typical, if you like, uh, cliffs on equity investing to make make sure that even people who are leaving would feel as if it be shareholders of the company. That's that's quite remarkable. Yeah, there was definitely discussions about like just how generous should we be? How many weeks of severance? What should we do with healthcare? How should we think about equity? And you know, I think if a if a CEO is in this situation and they have to make one of two choices cut deeper and be more generous to everyone you cut or don't cut as deep and don't be as generous. I think it's pretty, it seems pretty obvious to me that you should be as generous as possible and then cut as deep as you need to be to be as generous as possible. Because the inverse is you have a lot of people that are kind of hung out to dry and they're in a really, really bad situation. And what you should do is be all in on people or be all out on people, but not put them in this kind of purgatory kind of situation. And so for me, it was pretty clear. I also just felt like we were already saving a lot of money. Like we were saving all with the overall reduction of fixed costs, the reduction of projects, the winding down of many initiatives, or we were cutting back, you know, more than a half a billion dollars of marketing. And so I felt like you can't cut your way out of goodwill though. You can't cut so deeply that the public can't, possibly root for you to return. You can't possibly cut so deeply that, you know, the employees don't want to work for you and they, they, they don't really want to rally together. And so, you know, what we did is we were really brutal about the initiatives. We just weren't brutal about the people. We were really ruthless though. We were extraordinarily ruthless about the initiatives. We were merciless about like, this is a great idea and we're not doing anymore. It's easy to say no to things you don't like. The real test is saying no to things that you love and it hurts you. And that was the most important decision we made. And that was the thing that got us out of the tailspin and really fixed the financial situation of the company. But, you know, we also felt like the goodwill we got from the way we treated people, or I think we got, um, was also very helpful as well. Now, let's let's move forward in the sense that so you've done the layoff. Uh, now you still have a big hole to climb out of, right? We're still in the midst of COVID. This is now May last year. Uh, tell us what then happened from the period roughly between what, May and maybe the fall? So, you know, not long after the layoff, we started getting these really interesting indications in our data that we weren't expecting. Um, one of the ways to forecast our business is to look at leading indicators. One of the leading indicators of our business is searches. So before people book on Airbnb, they type in a location and they often like add dates and they might be looking for weeks before they commence a booking. So it's kind of, you know, on Amazon, you go and you just buy something. On Airbnb, you kind of have to say, where do I want to go? Are are we available? Can we get transportation there? Um, Do we want to go this place? Do we want to stay in that house? Yeah. So there's a long lead time. We started getting indications mid to late May that our business was going to rebound. And the rebound really started in Memorial Day. And here's what happened. People weren't traveling for business. Business travel was wiped out and people weren't missing business travel. People were also not crossing borders, which was half of our business in 2019, people crossing borders. But what people did want to do was they were stuck in their house for months. They wanted to get in their cars and they want to drive within a tank of gas to a house and gather with their close family or close friends. And so by June, we started seeing bookings picked up, but we also pivoted the company. 
we did a campaign called Go Near, meaning instead of go far, go near, travel nearby. We really you know, shifted the way we were doing email marketing to promote to our users. We tried to get our, cust- our host ready. We worked with Dr. Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, the now Surgeon General for President Biden of the United States. He helped us develop an enhanced cleaning protocol. We said, we don't want to be as clean as hotels. We want to get to a standard, maybe even beyond where they were at that point. More than 1 million hosts set that standard. And so we did a number of things. We took $250 million of our own balance sheet and we gave it to host to help them make it through. And by the way, this is when we were having trouble raising equity. We were a $40 billion company. We were having trouble raising equity at 18 billion. In fact, we we ended up going with debt. We went with a $2 billion debt with an $18 billion warrant because equity was really difficult and we thought it was gonna be too expensive. The business would recover. Now we take more than 10% of that cash and we immediately give it out to hosts. That seemed kind of crazy, except for when you ask yourself, well, why do we exist in the first place? We exist because we have hosts. They are what make our Airbnb. They are our lifeblood. If they aren't solvent, we're not solvent. So we, you know, we did a lot of these actions. And I think two things happened. One, we moved quickly enough to position the ship to steer in the right direction. And two, I think what was revealed is we had a fundamentally adaptive model. I think there's an old saying, the best way not to fall off a bicycle is to keep moving, to not slow down. In a world that's fast changing, one of the things we know is that things that survive in the world are the most adaptive. The things that are most adaptive are things that constantly change. It turned out that because we have many types of hosts, 4 million hosts that have every, nearly every type of space in 100,000 communities, in 220 countries, at nearly all price points, in cities, rural areas, around national parks, we can adapt to almost any shift in travel. And at that moment, we started realizing we may actually have a really good Q3. We actually had a better Q3 of that year than the year before in many circumstances. By the way, I'll say one more thing, James. At one point, one of the bankers called me, a very smart person, one of the lead bankers of one of the banks that was working our IPO, and I remember they said, I think it's safe to say you can put your S1 on the shelf and you won't need to look at it again this year. And, and then I said, someone else said, it would be beyond inconceivable that you could go public. It would be impossible. If I had told people in the depth of the crisis that we were going to go public that year, they would have asked me to get a Sandy check. It was considered <laughs> inconceivable. And then suddenly... We're like, maybe there's a window to go public. And I, I thought it would be the ultimate like comeback story if we could do that. And I knew people were counting on this. And so we dusted off the S1. This is now July. We really got back to our roots. And the S1 was describing the old company. So we had to basically rewrite the S1. And I got really in the details. I personally wrote around 14,000 words and I really toiled. And I, what the crisis really taught me was to totally focus all of your energy on something and do it to the very best of your ability because you have to be completely present. It's like triaging. Okay, I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. Right. And so we just immersed ourselves in the S1 and we started realizing there's a real story here, not even knowing we're going to file it. Then Q3 hits. We're like, wow, this is a really incredible quarter. We have a window. So we filed our S1. And I think people were surprised that not only did we not go out of business, we were actually now going to try to go public. Hey, hey Brian, before we get to the S1, I mean, you, you're going to have to say more about this because 
you're describing a story of focus and rebound at a time when the rest of the travel industry and hospitality wasn't happening. So what yeah. was it about you, about Airbnb, about the model or the resilience of it or the core? What, what is it that made this a little bit different? Yeah, the number one thing that was different was our model was adaptable. So let's compare it to hotels. A lot of hotels are in really popular tourist destinations. They're in Times Square, they're in Fisherman's Wharf, or they're in Hawaii or Orlando where people are gathering. They typically cater to crowds. They typically cater to business travel. And so if you aren't traveling for business, if you don't want to be around crowds, and if you don't want to go to a really popular destination, they still have the concrete, they still have the staff, they can furlough the employees, but there's not really much more they can do. And if demand is shifting from New York City to Catskill, New York, you really can't build a hotel and adapt to it. With Airbnb, it's just an inherent kind of highlight of our model. We don't have to build any infrastructure. Maybe another way of saying it is trillions of dollars of infrastructure were already invested in the creation of millions of people's homes. So it turns out we could just leverage this infrastructure that already exists. If you type your hometown in Airbnb, I bet you there's not there's more than one Airbnb in your hometown. And we're at every price point. We have people renting $10,000 a night villas. We also have people renting the space like under their kitchen table. Like we're in mega metropolises, like the center of London to the off the grid homes, you know, outside of Joshua Tree, completely off the grid. So because we cater to luxury, to budget, urban to rural, city the vacation, we're not an American company, we're a global company. And that was the most important thing. We were a network. Networks, or, or said differently, James, we are a community. Communities are ecosystems. Ecosystems like mother nature are inherently adaptable. And so that I think was the most important thing. I also do think though, while most other travel companies were retreating or in a holding pattern, we decided to go on offense. You know, I did over a hundred press interviews last year. The main reason I did press interviews was because we had no marketing budget. Very few CEOs in travel were giving lots of interviews because people didn't know what to say. And I thought this was the best time to speak because what in times of crisis, you should increase communication. And I didn't just think that meant employees. I thought times of crisis meant increased communication to all of our stakeholders, to guests, to hosts, to shareholders, to employees, into the public at large. You spent an enormous amount of time writing your S1. There's a letter from the co-founders, you and your co-founders, uh, Joe and Nate, that you wrote where you almost you went literally back to first principles about what was at the root of the company. It's quite striking that, you know, it's, it's unlike, you know, any S1 letter that I've ever seen, at least. I mean, you talk about how you were the first host. You talk about belonging and connection as being the core of the company. Take us back to those first principles and how you thought about writing that um, founder's letter. I will say writing the founder's letter was surprisingly more difficult than the layoff letter. The layoff letter was difficult emotionally, but the layoff letter was clear that I just had to tell them what was happening step-by-step. Step. The problem is a lot of companies have a founder's letter and a lot of companies write about their mission, how they're changing the world. And I was really, really nervous because I was concerned that it was going to be like Pablum or I, I originally, I wrote a different letter. I wrote a letter about the crisis 
Because initially I thought I, I have to explain to people why we're going public, that people are asking, is everything going to exist? And now we're going public. And I talked to my co-founders and we realized this is a great letter for this moment in time, but it's probably, while a good artifact, it's not very timeless. And I read Jeff Bezos' 1997 shareholder letter, even though it was an S1 letter. What is great about it is he told shareholders, he made them partners, and he told the shareholders as partners what makes Amazon unique and different and how he's going to run the company. And I spent a long time, it started with a list of 10 things, and I kept trying to reduce it. If Airbnb was gone tomorrow, what would be the things we missed about Airbnb? What makes Airbnb different than every other company? And the reason I thought that was important was because Airbnb was also a very misunderstood company. You know, from the very beginning, a lot of people thought Airbnb will never work. Strangers never stay with each other. This is a very different kind of culture. This is a founder who went to design school. I backed into these three principles. One was really about like why we exist. The other is about like, you know, kind of our creative spirit. And the third one was about this idea of trying to be a different kind of company, a company rooted in 21st century principles and ideals where we have a responsibility to more than just shareholders. We have responsibility to all stakeholders. And I try to trace each of the three core principles. Why do we believe it? And as investors, what does this mean for you? So I had three macro principles. And under each, I had three basic ideas. I said, like, we're creatively led. What does creatively led mean? It means that we're going to you know, use our imagination to come up with ideas. What, what does that mean practically? It means we're going to use data, but we're not going to just use data to make decisions. We are going to conceive of breakthrough ideas that maybe the customer doesn't even know they want yet. We're going to always have creative people at the table. You know? So these were the practical implications. I think maybe the most important part of the letter, or at least the most universal part of the letter, was the third section, responsible to stakeholders. I wanted investors to know how it's going to run the company. I said the best thing for shareholders is for society to want us to exist. And society will want us to exist if they think as Airbnb benefits, they benefit. And so I thought the rules of business had changed. This idea that the job of a corporation was to solely serve shareholders may have been correct, but talk to anyone under the age of 30. Number one, they care about the quality of the product. Somebody under 30 cares about the what the company stands for. I'm not saying exclusively people under 30. I'm just saying there was a new generation of people that have a much wider lens about what a responsibility is for a company. So my point was, number one, it is the right thing to do to serve not only shareholders, but all of your stakeholders. But even if you're being self-interested, it's in self-interest of shareholders that you find a harmony with all their stakeholders. This idea that for one stakeholder to win, the other has to lose, to me was a bad design. I always thought like a designer, a designer wants to find a win-win-win. I mean, design is not the way something looks. Design is how something works. And something works best when you assemble it to make it work best for the most number of people. That is the best possible design. A product that's not just good, it's good for the environment. community-based product that's not just good. It's good for the people using it. And we really like changed the way we ran the company. We created a special board committee, a stakeholder committee to really look at how we're going to serve. And you need a real auditing function to hold yourself accountable. Whatever you talk about at your board meeting is what really matters. So you can't have this like board meeting with an audit committee and going through your financials. And that's the important stuff. And then you do these kind of corporate exercises but they're not the same thing in talking to the board meeting. So we created a separate board committee that we said is as important as the audit committee. We call it the stakeholder committee. 
And their job is to audit our impact on stakeholders the way an audit committee audits our financials. And I kind of summed the letter up by saying, in the end, they all share a common theme, a fundamental belief that you know people are good and we're 99% the same. And so that's the core belief of the company. We really think of ourselves as a pretty human company. I mean, the product we offer is delivered by hosts, regular people. And so we really thought of these three, I think, kind of humanistic qualities. One, the core value of what we're delivering is this human need of connection and belonging. Two, that we're using this idea of creativity, which is one of the most humanistic of capacities a human has is creativity. It's really hard for a machine to automate creativity. It's very difficult. And this idea that we're responsible to all people that we serve in our ecosystem. Well, and you also did something which is quite remarkable. You you actually created a host fund, which basically makes your hosts partners with you, right? Absolutely. So I'm glad you brought this up. One of the things I was very careful about is I don't want to say something if I haven't done something. And so we looked at each one of our stakeholders. And the, one of the most important things we did is we said, we want to treat our host as partners. Part of a host being a partner to Airbnb is they can share in this success. And so initially we thought of just giving out equity to host, but there's a lot of limitations about being able to just give out equity. And the other problem with giving out equity is it doesn't compound if you give something to somebody and they sell it right away. And I know you know, like our employees that I hired in the early days, had they been able to sell their stock in the early days, they would have been much worse off than if they sold it, you know, after the IPO, you know, obviously. And so we said, we actually think there's a different way to do this program. And we looked and we saw inspiration from college endowments where you have a donor, they put money into a principal and then the principal grows. And then obviously some of the the appreciation can be reinvested. And we said, what if we did that for the host fund? And so we ended up taking 9.2 million shares of Airbnb stock, and we put it into what we called an Airbnb host endowment. And that endowment charter is to support hosts now and for future generations. What we actually do with it, though, we're not going to unilaterally decide. So we created a host advisory board of 17 hosts, from 14 different countries that were leaders in our community. And that advisory board is going to advise on what we do with that endowment. It could be a scholarship fund. It could support hosts. It could work on community programs. But whatever it is, it should be thought of and conceived in partnership with our host. I also committed to putting $100 million of my own equity into the host endowment. Uh, as of today's you know, share price, it is going to soon be approaching, we hope, $2 billion, which is larger than many host and uh, college endowments. And one advice I give to every entrepreneur now is if you start a company, set aside a couple percent of the company equity. Super hard if you're a public company. I totally get you can't do that. But I said, a company that's private is like wet cement. It's not hardened yet. Once you're public, it's hardened. And so we wanted to figure out any commitments we can make before the cement got hardened. And I think the most important commitment we thought we can make was the Airbnb host endowment. You know, one of the things that's exciting and inspiring about you and what you're doing is one thing you keep saying is you're only just getting started. And you routinely say you're trying to build a multi-decade company, right? What's on your mind as you think about what lies next, what lies ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think the very end of the letter, I said something like, 
At the depth of the crisis, people asked, is this the end of Airbnb? It wasn't. It's just the beginning. And, and I felt that. And I mean, I'm 39 years old, although I'm 39, kind of going on 49 after last year. And um, this is my life's work. And one of the things, James, I'm most proud of about Airbnb, one of the, the single most things I'm f- proud of, and it's, I think it's the top of the letter, a letter from Brian, Joe, and Nate. The three of us, we're still together. We're a company with a market cap over $100 billion, the three founders still together. I'm really proud of the relationship that we have with each other. And, you know, Joe, Nate, and I, um, Joe and I don't have kids. Uh, Nate does. So I'll take his word for it. But I always think of a company like your child. Now, the worst thing you can imagine is your child now outliving you. None of us as founders want to outlive our own companies and watch its demise. And the other thing is, I like to always ask entrepreneurs, why do you deserve to exist? And the best generic answer I've ever heard is because if I don't do it, no one else will. And so the question I asked is, what really, why should Airbnb exist? It's really those three things. There's not a lot of other companies that are this size run by a designer that truly have a unique creative approach. There's a lot of companies that are in the services and commodities business, but not a lot of companies in the connection and belonging business at a time when this is probably the most isolating time in human history. And I think capitalism needs a little bit of an evolution. And I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one saying this. The business roundtable with hundreds of the world's best CEOs has said this. I think that we need to adapt to meet the needs and challenges of society. And I think that a, the next generation of entrepreneurs need a model. They need role models. And I think that we have an opportunity to try to be a possible role model for other entrepreneurs. So I think this is the first inning, not even the first inning. This is the first at bat of the first inning. And, you know, I think that we're at the beginning of something much larger. Everybody's 13 years old. You don't raise your 13-year-old to be a good 14-year-old. You raise your 13-year-old to be a great adult with a long career over many decades. That's exactly how we're thinking about Airbnb. Brian, I think that's a wonderful place to conclude the conversation. This has been a remarkable conversation and really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can find a transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. You will also be able to find a link to the MGI report on the 21st Century Corporation in the description or show notes of this podcast. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our inside the strategy room collection page on mckinsey.com. Follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.